welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society Podcast, hosted by Marco Cipelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now, to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. All right, everybody, welcome. This is Redefining Society podcast with me, Marco Cerpelli. Uh, if you're consuming the audio and you're driving, enjoy and pay attention to the road, or just <laughs> do what I do, which I really get into audible in the car. And then I need to remember that I am actually driving and uh, or you're walking the dogs, whatever you're doing. But if you're watching the video, you already know that, of course, I am never podcasting by myself. I always have a guest. And today I'm really excited. I had in the past many conversation about the next generation and the next generation after that, I like to look at the future a lot, but I also like to look at the future thinking about the past. So what the older generation are doing and what the future one. And I think the future ones are, I don't know, in a very peculiar situation that maybe every generation says that. <laughs> no, I don't know. Grandfather said, hey, nothing was better than my generation or maybe wasn't but we always have something different from the one before except technology make changes faster and faster and faster so we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about growing up in public which is a book and it's about the coming of age in a digital world and we're here with devora haydner the author and she's going to Tell us about a, a world that we need to, to think more about, I guess. Um, I do that all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that all the listeners are here because I do that all the time. So a lot to learn today. Devora, little introduction about yourself and then let's dive in into this book. Sounds good. So I, am, I used to be a professor of media studies and I taught 18 to 22 year olds. And when I was teaching those kids, and young adults, they would do, I taught a class called Kids Media Culture, and they would do interviews with like nine-year-olds. And 
that's when I really started to observe the micro generations that even though my students, which back in the day had grown up, you know, with MySpace, they were doing interviews with kids who were the first kind of really good video game kids and, and, and smartphones were coming out in that era. So this is around like 2010, 2011, 2012. And I recognize that even though these kids could be their siblings, there are already big differences between like a nine-year-old and a 19-year-old in 2012 in terms of what they had grown up with. And I wrote my first book, ScreenWise, in 2016 when I was a new parent. So I had a six-year-old when that book came out. And, you know, parents around me were asking a lot of questions. Should we be sharing our kids on social media? Should we be letting our kids use touchscreen, you know, apps, which are super accessible, even to little kids? And as I started traveling around the country and speaking about ScreenWise and helping parents and educators kind of demystify the digital kids and hopefully have empathy for them and understand them and support them as opposed to kind of fearing the changes that digital technology was bringing into young people's culture. One of the biggest responses I got was parents coming up to me and saying, Devorah, this is great. I'm super empowered. I get it. Tech can be positive for kids, but I'm so glad my high school years, my college years, my middle school years weren't shared on the internet. I'm so grateful that there's no photographic record of every dumb hairstyle I tried, every stupid dance move, every time I thought maybe I would like take some article of clothing off at a party, every time I was drunk, um, and every thought that passed my brain. I'm really glad that that's not you know, publicly searchable under my name or my face, my face recognition right now. And how are my kids supposed to deal with this? And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to write another book. What does it mean to grow up in public? What does it mean to grow up with all this sharing and comparing with your parents sharing you on social media with apps like Life360 to track you all around town? This is a lot for kids to navigate and a lot for families to figure out. So I've spent the last five years interviewing teenagers and parents and educators, as well as psychologists and other, other experts to really dive into what it means to grow up in the digital age. And, uh, and we know people are worried about it, right? The Surgeon General just put out a, a big report about mental health and teenagers yeah, and social media. Good timing on that. I was reading it. <laughs> yeah. Some of the advice is like, oh, I've been saying this for 10 years, but I'm glad it's catching on. You know, in some ways you can feel like, oh, well, I've been saying this, but in the in, in a sense, like, you know, Vivek Murthy has a reach that I don't, right? So I'm glad that he's saying, you know, some of the things parents can do to support their kids for sure. And yet there is always, I was just reading uh, this morning that, that article. And, and of course, like every news nowadays is here's the news. And then at the end is like, but there's also this other side. So, you know, <laughs> eventually they start with a headline and they're like, but of course there's a lot of good things that this is bringing. And so we still need a lot of research and a lot of study and probably when they're done with all those studies, there's something different. <laughs> So right. And um, meanwhile, your kid will be 30. So what are you supposed to do right now? Yeah. And probably we're all going around with augmented reality glasses and we have even a different uh, approach to that. So I guess the, the, the thing is it's and I kind of said that at the, in the introduction, it's, it's an ongoing thing about what is new, what is new, what is new and how do we adapt to that? I mean, I remember my days tv was the devil and too much tv and the video games start coming out are you stuck to that screen go out take a ball go play football which you know was easy i was i grew up in italy so maybe we'll touch about the difference the cultural difference here too but are we are we overreacting 
are we overprotecting just because we can? That's a great question. I think a lot of parents feel like they should surveil their kids' texts because they can. There are apps that will do that. There are apps that will help you you know, track where your kid has gone on the internet and track all kinds of things and even track their location. And a lot of parents use, you know, find my phone or they have their kids, they have watches. And, and I feel like it can be like an electric bracelet, you know, like if your kid is not in a work release program from, from prison, you know, do, should they need an electric bracelet at the same time, there have been times where my kid is out and he doesn't have his phone with him. And I feel really worried, you know, for a moment, because in our society, we feel like we need to know where everyone is at all times. But then I'm like, he's 14. He should be able to be out in the world. And if he forgot his phone, like, I know he'll be home later, you know, like, I don't need to panic. But I think especially because we're so used to the electronic tether and having so much information, even, you know, my husband and I were together before we had cell phones. And I think about how often we had contact during the day when we were in our, you know, when I was in my 20s and he was in his early 30s and we were working people and we were dating and then we were living together and then we were married and we didn't have phones, how much would I expect? Like if he wasn't coming home at all, you know, if he missed the train, then I would maybe expect him to get on a pay phone and call me. But if he was just like running a little late, I didn't necessarily expect that phone call. Now it's different when you're sharing childcare with someone, then you sort of need to know where they are. And honestly, I can't imagine raising a kid with a partner without a digital calendar. Like we can look at the Google calendar together and be like, okay, especially when our son was younger, but even now, like we don't go out of town. Both of us don't go out of town separately on business trips and leave him overnight alone, right? So there's not as much need to like hour by hour plan our time. So there's no childcare gap, but there's still the like, no, wait, you can't go to DC when I'm going to New York. Like that's not gonna work. Um, And so we have the Google calendar for that. So in some ways the sharing is amazing and it can be a really good tool for co-parenting. It can be a really good tool for organizing ourselves, all three of us in our family have ADHD. So it's like a lot of really helpful tools to organize. But when it gets down to the surveillance, I think a lot of parents feel like they should like, oh, my kid is driving now. I should get Life360 or my kid is riding their bike to school. I should be doing this or my kid has this app that tells me every time the teacher posts a grade. And I wrote about this in growing up in public, like, should you be seeing every time a teacher posts a grade? That might actually be too much information for you, for your child that actually might be stressful. I talked to a lot of families where the grading apps was undermine, were undermining their trust and their relationship. And also it can turn the relationship with your teacher into a very kind of uh, frustrating relationship or, you know, really quantified relationship where you're just trying to like get these points. And, you know, you're constantly, instead of reaching out to have a good relationship with the teacher or just thinking about learning, you're constantly, you know, on them about like, how, how can I get more points? How can I get more points? Because you see these numbers all the time. So I think, all of these apps that we're told we should have, like I'm told I should download all these apps from the school every fall. I'm, you know, told that my teenager will be safer if I have Life360. I think we need to push back and really say, what are we surveilling our kids for, right? I think there can be a role, for example, like say your kid is learning to text and they're 11 and sitting down with them and looking at that with them at their texts. I think covert surveillance has no place, you know, in our parenting lives. But I think sitting down with your kid and saying, okay, well, you're learning to text. Let's look at this together. Okay, I see maybe this didn't go so well. Do you want to talk about like what you could do differently next time, right? I think there's a role for that kind of mentorship where you're being open about looking at it and your kid is actually showing you what they're doing. So I'm not saying, when I say that surveillance is out of control, I'm not saying hand your 11-year-old a smartphone and walk away and come back when they're 21 and I hope it goes great. 
that's not what I'm saying. We need to mentor our kids on this stuff because these are powerful tools and we're giving kids something very powerful that can cause a lot of problems if, we're, if they don't know how to use it well. What I am saying though, is that when we're told, parents are I think told like, hey, you better sign up for all those updates from school. You better see what Class Dojo is saying about your kid. And for me anyway, as a parent, I found that incredibly stressful. I don't need to know that my son didn't called out without raising his hand at 10 a.m. I'm at work. Like, call me if it's a big problem, you know, email me if it's a big problem, but I don't need like the minute by minute from school. And I think those, those apps for little kids like Class Dojo just accustom you to getting all this data. And then your kid is in high school and they walk in the door and you're like, why did you get a 70 on, their, on that test? And they haven't even seen that yet because they haven't looked yet. That's too much. I think too much, it's, it's exact. <laughs> the point is like, where is too much? Uh, I want to go back a little bit here because you mentioned in this app 360, then you said another one, Dojo. Uh, I am familiar. I know what is about. Can you be more specific? Like what, what this 360 app does? Let's assume somebody yeah. out there doesn't know that. And so, you know, what, what's the intention? Because usually here's one thing I learned in technology. I don't think anyone, well, maybe Dr. Evil, but in general, uh, even a company, it, it, it does something because they want to resolve a problem and then it kind of get out of end because you have to monetize and you're going to start adding one thing and another. But the good intention is there. So this 360, this other app that are, you know, sharing your location when you're arriving home on a map or something like that. Tell us what is that one and and why do you think to start with is so popular? Always the way you talk, it's almost like they tell you, you should have it. And if you don't, we're going to point the finger at you because you don't. You're a bad, you're a bad parent. Right. I think it, we're just getting really accustomed to knowing where everyone is. Like I was saying, like we're getting accustomed to being able to check in. A lot of parents have rules that are understandable. I mean, I also want my son to write me back. If I text him and say, where are you? When are you coming home? I don't want him to ignore me. So I understand that feeling as a parent was very frustrating and I can understand why a parent would want. So Life360, you can check in on everyone's location and people opt in. So you have like a family membership. And for us, we're just a family of three, just me, my husband and our son. And we would be you know, able to see each other on the map. And some people love it. I'm going to say not everyone I interviewed hated it. A lot of people told me that they use it in funny ways too, that their kids will see that they're by their favorite donut shop and say, oh, I see you're over there by, you know, Huckfin Donuts. Can you pick me up a really, you know, a chocolate cruller? Um, I had parents oh telling me when their kids came home from college during, uh, we, we, we can talk among as adults here, right? So, so their kids were home from college suddenly due to COVID and the parents were like, um, my kid is coming in and out of the house at all times. And I don't know when me and my partner can have some, some alone time for intimacy. So I'm going to look up Life360 and I see my kid is just going to the movie theater. I think we have two hours, honey. Like, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why you would use it that might not be bad, right? I kind of think that's a great use of technology. It's like, okay, we have privacy. But at the same time, if you're tracking your 16 year old all over town because you think you should, and they're basically doing okay, they've not given you a reason to mistrust them. And I had a mother tell me in growing up in public, this stories in the book, that she found that her son was stopping at a girl's house every day. And she's like, is that his tutor? Is that his girlfriend? Is that his drug dealer? I have no idea, but we don't know this girl. Why is he going there? And I thought, 
let him tell you if that's his girlfriend. Like maybe he wants to get to know her before he brings her home to his mom. Like not every high school relationship is the person you introduce your parents to, but also like give him a minute, you know, like let him tell you. And if you have no reason to worry, your kid is showing up to school, they're doing, you know, doing a good job there they're not, you know, on drugs or, or doing anything that's problematic that you have reason to worry about, then why would you suddenly be like, oh, no, they're stopping at someone's house, you know, that I don't know at 16. I mean, that's, that's kind of extreme. So I think we, we just need to back off a little bit from all this surveillance and at least be aware of what we're doing it for. Now, when parents say, okay, my kid is driving alone cross country, and it'll bring me a lot of reassurance and actually decrease the amount of fighting because I won't be texting them all the time if I see that their dot is making their way across the country. And the kid agrees to that, I would say that that might be a good thing too. Like if we can use these technologies in a way that affirms the relationship and doesn't undermine trust, but the second it's starting to undermine trust or cause fights in the family, I would take it off my phone and just take a break. Uh, a lot to think about because so here's what comes in my mind, you know, um, an old movie uh, with uh, Kurt Russell back from the 80s. Um, uh, I think it was Escape from New York. Uh, his character was Yana Plinsky. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And he has to save the president in this post-apocalyptic uh, New York. And uh, yeah, he has a monitor. And the, old, the entire time he tried to get rid of it. And I've, as you're telling me all these things, I'm like, I just can totally see this the spy finding the you know the the transmitter and throwing it in the opposite train and so that you don't know and you can't follow anymore. So my point is apart from the joke is it it's time and place, right? So on one way do we need to know every time? I mean you mentioned there are certain situations it helps. I do share my location if I'm traveling, you know, with my wife or, you know, with my friends, if I, if, if I want them to feel relaxed about it. But once I'm done, I'm going to turn it off. I have no desire. Now, I'm talking about me as an adult where you can choose when it's useful or not. So I, I guess my, my question for you is to establish these boundaries and also this immediacy of things. Like I have people, and I know that, that you text someone, you don't get a text back in like five minutes. You call them, hey, I just text you. And I'm like, I know, I saw it, but <laughs> you know, what are you gonna do? Send me an email too, or I don't know, what's up or whatever it is. So this time, this, I think the anxiety it is becoming a problem with this. And I, I, I feel it sometimes. I, like I'm over worried, but then I look back and I'm thinking like, it has never been like this in the other generation before. I mean- well, we need to, yeah, we need to model for young people that we can wait and that it's okay to not get back to people right away if we're busy. But how will kids know that? And I see kids blowing up each other's phones. And especially after the last three years, so many of us were reachable all the time. And now we're getting back into doing more things. So yeah, we'll see kids like text someone again and again. And, you know, I thought I had taught my kid not to do that. But then I saw him doing it. I was like, no, no. (laughs) I wrote about this in screen. I was like, how are you doing this? But we just all have to work on ourselves and and our patience. I mean, you know, my mother-in-law is 92 and she was driving into her late 80s and she would like pull over to answer her cell phone. And I'm like, at least you're pulling over, but you don't have to pull over and answer your cell phone. You can just get back to me later. 
I'm just calling you to see if you want to eat dinner later. Like we'll talk, you know, it's okay. And so I think that immediate feedback is a lot. I think teaching kids to even have empathy for the other person and think about what you're doing when you can't get back to someone like, and think about, okay, that's what my friend might be doing. And so they might be eating dinner, they might be doing homework, they might be, you know, playing soccer outside. They're not, it's okay if they're not getting back to me. And it doesn't mean they hate me. And I think being an adult, we have that perspective. Like if I don't hear back from someone right away, I don't immediately go to, they hate me, they don't want to talk to me. I, you know, I know I'm busy, so I can have empathy and imagine everyone else is busy. But I think when you're a kid, and especially if 90% of the time your friend does get right back to you, when they don't, it can feel like they're wanting to not talk to you again. Mm. Let's talk about, I mean, we could keep talking about this for a long time, but I want to move more into where you started, meaning since an early age, you are in public. So apart from knowing in the family or amongst the friends, which, you know, again, I think could be very useful, but boundaries, please (laughs) give me my space. Uh, But the fact that we're using social media and we're advertising and publicizing kids since when they're born. Uh, I heard cases in France where kids are suing their parents because they did something like that. Like, I didn't give you my (laughs) permission. Now there are people, I mean, everybody knows what I've done at every stage of my life. Not cool. Why don't we just think about this? Right. So I think the the extreme cases, like the kid influencers where the parents are monetizing it. But I think a lot of kids, even whose parents are just sharing for fun on Facebook or Instagram, where it's really just about like, I just want to show what a great parent I am. I want to show how cute my kids are. I want to get likes. And it's not even that level of monetization. It still can feel very invasive and problematic to kids. So here's my more specific question. Um, I like to ask who is educating the educator. And I do that in for teachers. And I think that there has been a, a gap, uh, that passage uh, from the from analogic world to digital world, and then social media blow up everything. Do the parents and um, maybe the parents that didn't grow up with this, but just the fact you grew up with something doesn't mean you're an expert at it. You just use it, right? So I don't want to point finger, but shouldn't we all have gotten a better education on what the phone does, the smartphone? There is a GPS in there, (laughs) and there is an app for that. And I mean, where do we, where did it start it? this problem. I mean, this is what I do because, and and it's not like, I'm not so far ahead of the parents and educators I'm speaking to, but I do go around to schools and workplaces and talk to people about this stuff. And the main thing I see myself as a translator, because I try to speak to kids as much as possible and find out about their experience. Because the ways they use even the same tools, like a lot of adults are on Instagram and so are a lot of kids. Like some things are more young people, like Discord skews pretty young you know, TikTok, obviously there's a huge range, but not everyone's on it. Uh, But something like Instagram, you have a lot of parents on it and a lot of teenagers, but they're using it differently. And I think it's important for parents to even understand, even if I'm using the same tech tools as my kid, or even if I'm a gamer, my kid might have a different experience coming of age in a gaming community, partly because they're maybe coming of age on a public server in a place like Roblox or Minecraft, where I was playing games with people I knew, which already is a different experience. 
right? Just like that community level of, you know, like, and I mean, I took my son to a gaming arcade in Alameda in the Bay Area, and he saw the old games that my husband and I played. And I wasn't a huge gamer, and neither of us were huge gamers. But you know, part of it was because we had Pong and Pac-Man. Maybe we would have mm -hmm. been huge gamers if we had had Minecraft, right? Like the games are much better now. <laughs> so I think yeah. it's, and my kid felt sorry for us. He was like, felt bad when he saw those games. He was like, this is like the sorriest I've ever, you know, like you, you all the stories parents tell kids, I walked 20 miles in the snow. And then he saw Pong. He was like, okay, now I really feel bad for you. So. <laughs> but it was so cool when you had it. It was so <laughs> cool. Right. But I think that the, one of the differences is that you have to have a different level of education to yeah. even play Roblox because you can meet strangers on Roblox. So when we were playing Atari or when we were going to the arcade, I guess, and putting in a quarter, like, A, it's a time limited, anything where you have to pay money, you know, per, per slot, you know, it's time limited. So we didn't have to tell our kids don't play for 10 hours because they would run out of money. And then, you know, something like the Atari was just in your house. Like it, what well, you weren't playing with, you know, people on a public network. So the conversation you have to have with a seven, eight or nine year old about Roblox or Minecraft or Fortnite, where you have to say like, hey, if someone asks where you live or anything like that, or that it's even okay to leave if people are being hateful. Like a lot of kids don't know that if someone's being hateful online, they can just leave the situation because we teach our kids to be nice and sometimes we forget to teach them. Yeah, but if someone's dropping racial slurs into your Roblox chat, you can just bug on out of there. You don't have to stay. So who's teaching the teachers? I mean, I think there's a lot of organizations that are trying. I mean, I think, you know, ISTE, which is one of the big digital citizenship and digital, you know, digital educational organizations has good digital citizenship standards for educators. But I also think the pandemic was a huge accelerant and tons of families got school devices that they might not have been super ready for. And schools weren't always in a position to do a great job mentoring parents on, hey, you can take that school iPad or Chromebook away at night. You don't need to let kids go to bed with it. You know, and I, I think that's also depending on how empowered a parent feels related to school, which can be a lot about class and immigration status and other things like, you know, if my kid says, oh, this is for school, I might feel like, oh, I better let them have it at all times, you know, um, whereas I, I might feel different about that. I might feel more empowered and say, no, kid, you can't have your Chromebook in bed at night. <laughs> you got to go to sleep. But I, th I think schools could do a better job with outreach to parents about the school devices, as well as what kids can do on personal devices, including even a family shared device. You know, even before your kid gets their own phone, they're going to play with your phone. So these are things we need to talk about be long before they even have their own device. So let's talk about the difference between uh, this digital space and the real space, because Again, if you, the kid goes to the arcade and you say, well, don't trust the stranger if somebody's going to try to talk to you, an older person, you know, don't get candies from people you don't know. Don't get rides in a, in a van or whatever, anybody. So, I'm, and that was like, okay, it's real. It's physical. It's real people. And when I think about the online world, the connected one, not the one way, the Atari, like that was one way. Watching TV was a one way thing. Radio, it's one way unless you call them in. Now, every time you, you kind of open the door of the internet and you're in a multiplayer environment or a chat or a social media, you're 
the way I see it is you're you're literally opening a door and you're going outside. It's just not a concrete world, but it's still an open world. So I don't know if it's hard to grasp for people that it's still real. It's very so, real. And I think a, a lot of kids make real friends online, like in Discord, like in an interest-based or a gaming Discord, for example. And so, and and I'm not here to say strangers on the internet are always bad because, it, you know, yeah, I'm here talking to you and you're a stranger people. stranger on the internet. I, I fly out to schools and, and companies all the time to speak to someone who was once a stranger on the internet and maybe they DM'd me on Twitter and then I'm, you know, flying to their location to speak to their company or something. So I think it's very important to understand the ways we can verify someone's identity and figure out who they are, the ways we can make sure our own identity is aligned with who we are, but also that we're sharing to the degree that's safe. And it may be safer to share as an adult more of your identity and who you are than it is when you're a kid. But we also don't want to teach kids necessarily to just have like a fake identity or a pseudonym necessarily online. Like that might be an option to have a gaming handle that's not your name. But what we don't want to do is teach kids to do whatever they want on the internet because they're they're hiding. We, we wanna make sure that everyone understands that everything you do is ultimately attributable to you and that you don't wanna cause harm, whether it's under your own name or under a pseudonym or you know a handle or an avatar. I think that's really important because I think we, we give a lot of space to anonymity on the internet, but we, know, we all know that anonymous spaces on the internet can be very, very awful and cruel. And that's not where we want our kids. That's not a good sandbox for kids. So it's better to have your name out there and be accountable most of the time. Uh, I think that the question of how do we have that conversation, I think the kids can lead that conversation. I mean, they know a lot of kids are forming community in Tumblr, in Discord and other spaces. And so asking them, what does that look like? And I talk to kids who are mods. So they're thinking about like, this is how we moderate this community. These are the rules of this community. If you violate those rules, I'm gonna kick you out. You know, so I think the kids are actually in some ways the leaders on some of this, not that they don't need our mentorship and support. Again, I don't want to say like hand your 11 year old the phone and throw them in the deep end and we're all good here. You know, that's not what I mean. We don't necessarily want to be sort of Lord of the Flies and the 11 year olds lead the 11 year olds. But if you talk to a 15 or 16 year old who's a moderator on a discord, they're going to have a pretty good idea of like what is civil discourse? What is the behavior that crosses the line? Right. And that's a really good thing for young people to get involved in and to think about, because we're all in these digital communities, whether it's your office Slack, whether it's the podcast community and you're hanging out, you know, in, a, in, in that world, whether you're on LinkedIn, like all of these are digital communities and thinking about what are the rules and the habits of how we associate and talk about ourselves in these communities. You know, when is sharing something that's good news? Great. When is it too much? And it's like bragging, you know, like how often can you do it? Um, all these, and it's very subtle, right? This is why I think it's ideal for kids to learn to text first and then, you know, add social apps maybe one at a time and not kind of go into all of them at once because they are subtle spaces and every space has its own kind of hidden rules and curriculum and it can be a lot to navigate. So I do think, you know, coming back to who's teaching the teachers, I think we need to be in dialogue with our kids. We need to be mentoring them on the social skills not being impulsive online, you know, walking it back and apologizing and being accountable when we mess up. And we need to model for them, you know, how to communicate with people. And if we're in conflict, like if you're having something go wrong on a text, maybe calling someone up to work it out. And we need to listen to them and have them show us some of the ways that they're doing it because they did grow up with this stuff. And sometimes their instincts are better. 
you know, whereas a parent will brag about their kids on Facebook, the kid will be like, no, no, that's embarrassing. Like, I don't, don't put my awards ceremony on Facebook. Like you can tell grandma, you know, and they'll have a more subtle kind of attention to like, who is the audience for this post? It shouldn't be everyone we know. Common sense. So, um, I could go in a lot of different places and I feel like we, we could talk about other things. And, and I go back to the growing in public. I'm thinking back into the, you know, Andy Warhol, 15 minutes of fame, <laughs> which now we all have. As long as you do something cool, everybody know who you are. And then also goes away pretty quick. Uh, but people monetize on it. But we're already looking at a certain age. But you also mentioned the younger kids where the parents kind of exploit that and that's probably an entire different conversation i want to wrap it up with a few few things about the book uh number one which i'd like to ask that question who did you have in mind when you wrote this book is, is it for parents is it for teachers is it for community manager to educator what what is it who is for and I, usually i get everybody <laughs> but you know yeah i mean i would say everybody who cares about Everybody who cares about kids, but I think especially parents and educators who are dealing with these questions day to day, who are tasked with this really hard job of mentoring kids. I hope some people who also work in tech and do design some of these apps, including some of the education apps like Life360 and Class Dojo, as well as your metas and your TikToks, you know, I hope they look at it too. I hope anyone who's trying to scare kids into having a personal brand, which I think is BS, is looking at it. You know, so I think all of these people, but but for sure, parents and educators are a core audience. I'm hoping young adults may also have a look at it. And that when I speak at colleges, you know, I'll be interested to see what young students who have just kind of passed through high school and are into their kind of early years of their college and career, because they're being really threatened with this idea of whatever you post, then the Google recruiter won't want you or, you know, whatever you post, you won't get into Princeton or Berkeley. I think those kids and young adults need to look at this stuff too. I mean, that's, that's not as much of the direct audience for this book. Um, it's definitely written more for people raising kids and teaching kids, but I'll be very excited if some people in their early twenties read it and say, yes, this is valid, <laughs> you know, and relevant to my experience or, you know, here's what you missed, Devorah. I'm always, I always welcome those conversations with young people where they're like, yeah, yeah, that's good, but here's what you missed. You know, because I think young people are the experts ultimately on their own experience and we do want to be listening to them. I think that's, that's beautiful what you said, because I'm also thinking as either online or offline, kids do, I mean, humans and kids, of course, they, they create their own community. You, you mentioned that they create their own rule. You may go from one group to another and, and you need to kind of adapt your behavior you, you you go to school maybe you're a little bit different than when you are hanging out with your sport teammate or or when you are online on discord playing playing a game on twitch or whatever it is so there is this adaptation and that's that's human that's very human and i am kind of condensating this entire message and tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to the word trust. Trust the kids, trust the parents, then maybe they won't be those creepy 
following you all the time because it's not cool. I mean, thinking that every move I make, I'll be watching you, it's going to like, mm, <laughs> yeah, that song has not aged well. No, exactly. <laughs> not in that case. Thank you, Sting. Uh, but on the other hand, trust in the kids to to do the right thing and and maybe the kids trust in the parents as well so would it would it come down to to that i think uh, trust would you agree yeah i think trust and maybe authenticity as well like you know or alignment like how do how do my actions in this space align with who i am and what i want to be seen you know am i coming through and even even authenticity i think can be kind of like monetized and branded so it's kind of a funky word because people in advertising are like authenticity and I, I think that's bs too but truly you know <laughs> can you be yourself in these spaces and and yeah i think trust is really important and having trust and having trust in yourself like as a parent in this generation to have trust in myself as well as in my kid and say you know what i'm not messing up as a mom if i'm not reading all my kids texts as long as he knows he can talk to me if someone is harassing him or he's in a situation that he doesn't know how to deal with. I've left the door open. I've made it very clear that he can talk to me, that he can share the situation without naming names, for example, which is very different than reading someone's text and knowing like which friend is in crisis. He could come to me and say, I have a friend who's in crisis, who's you know thinking about suicide. Like, what are the things I can do to help? And he maybe doesn't have to tell me who it is. And I can mm -hmm. give him some resources, right? I mean, there might be a situation where you know I would wanna know or I wanna get more involved, but at least we wanna be clear if our kids trust us, that we're not snooping, they can also come to us if they do need help. And I think that's very important because if they think we're snooping and spying on them, they're less likely to open up to us and tell us what they need when there is a crisis. So I, th I think it's really important. And, and also to trust, yeah, to trust our own instincts. If, you know, five other moms and I are out to lunch and they're like, I follow my kid on Life360 for me to trust that I'm okay if I choose not to. Right. Just because you can doesn't mean you should exactly i love that ah uh, what well, could be my last question yeah here we go so you study media and i know i'm dragging it a little bit but i'm really enjoying this conversation so you, you you've studied media and you've seen all the changes I've, I've seen all those changes myself since the time i was studying sociology of communication and, and mass media and so on um how much do you think is affecting our daily life, real life versus the online life? So this media that we are in the TV, we are inside the radio, we are we are the anchor person, we are the podcaster, we are the, the, the people on Twitter doing the dance and getting thousands of people and leaving other people life. And sometimes it's it's fake. It would, could create a lot of problem. But then when we turn off that phone when we turn you know close the computer are we still real human or we have become digital even in our physical life i don't know it could be a very philosophical question but what do you i mean think i think our, our real life is and, and our digital life are connected and as you say it's not mm -hmm. one or the other and that's very permeable. But I think that opportunity for instant fame is also very confusing. And especially for kids, we should be talking about the quality of our relationships and not just the quantity. You know, like I don't, I mean, as much as, you know, my publisher wants me to have a million 
in followers and in some ways like financially, like for me as a self-employed author and entrepreneur, like of course, you know, there's that drive to like more, 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 but I'd rather have one good conversation, you know, and for our kids, like I want them to understand what's one good friend, like one good friend is everything, right? You don't need a million mm -hmm. people to follow you. All someone who follows you did is press a button. And it's like nice when I post, you know, on Substack or LinkedIn and, you know, a bunch of people follow me. I'm like, oh, they pressed a button. But that's not a high level of engagement. That's not the people who are outside my door with chicken soup if I'm sick. And the people I show up for if they need me, right? Like that, we, we have to make sure we're looking at the quality of our relationships. And most of us can count our close friends on one hand. You know, if you're very social, maybe it's two hands. But it shouldn't be like fingers and toes. You know, if you're talking about a four or five digit number, that's not your friend's. Yeah. And I think it's very important for kids to understand that, that, that we really want to think about who in, in a pinch in our real lives, like who matters. And it could be a friend you met on Discord, but ultimately, even though that might be where you met, it does, what is the relationship and is the relationship just beyond that one space, you know, and, and what has it transcended that relationship? I mean, so many of us are married to or living with someone we met on, you know, Tinder or an earlier version of dating app, you know, Bumble or J-Date. My dad's married to someone he met on J-Date. So like, you know, that's, that was a stranger from the internet once. Now that's his life partner, you know? <laughs> but it's important to think about it transcended that, you know, he's not just on the apps like forever, right? That's a different thing to do. You can do that too, that's fine. But like, that's different than a relationship that, you know, the, the app was the portal and now the relationship transcends the app and, you know. Oh my God, I'm just thinking I get an episode of like Black Mirror could be where, you know, you walk in the street and I'm, I don't know, I haven't really seen many episodes, so there could be one, but I'm just thinking when you go back home after you walk in the street, you, you go to the library, you go to school, do you have more followers because somebody smile at you? Does it count like a like or a <laughs> subscribe or, you know, it's kind of like, you know, a, a real melting of the two, the two worlds and I don't know. On one side, it's kind of fun. On the other one, it's kind of scary. So yeah, what was that? Dave, <laughs> Dave, good. What, what was the Dave Eggers book that was along those lines? You know, that was kind of a, a riff on Facebook. I mean, that was a very creepy oh, black mirror. That. Yeah, okay. I mean that that was you know, and 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 you do get ratings in your interactions. So there's like Yelp for you in this book, mm -hmm. and there all day people are rating their interactions with you. Yeah, and getting credit. It's kind of you know. I think China is doing something like that anyway. But the maybe circle, not, not necessarily. Oh, the circle. Oh, okay. Yes. I, that book was I so mean, creepy. It, yeah. It freaked me out so much. But it make you think. So maybe sometimes you do need to draw a line. But we're gonna draw a line on this conversation. And again, I know it went longer than what planned, but I really truly enjoyed it. It's a topic that just fascinated me to to look at what was life before and during and what it could be in a long, in a long years and period from now. Um, is it going to go utopic or dystopic? I hope not dystopic, but I don't know. I wouldn't put all my money on, on utopia here. So Devora, thank you so much. I want to invite everybody to uh, get the book which by the time that we we'll listen to this is either about to be published or published and of course getting the feedback i love how you said we need to check with with the with the subject of the book <laughs> if we're actually getting it right or wrong 100%. don't, don't make you. their own rules right don't make their own rules 
All right. Thank you so much. Everybody stay tuned. There will be linked to the Vora website, book, uh, social media, and uh, just, just give her time to answer them. Don't expect her to answer right away. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Subscribe. Again, follow us. Uh, the Defining Society Podcast and ITSP Magazine. Bye-bye. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.